Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did any one say that any of these things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common, and with great power the apostles have witnessed to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of those things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The resurrection is that card. It is that piece we play with power. It is that understanding, that assurance that we have that not just the sin problem is taken care of. We don't have to feel guilt and anxiety in the way we live for Christ will live in us and through us. But now instead, the problem is mortality. No. He's solved that one too in the resurrection and then the promise of a return to resurrect those who are in Him and to take those with Him who believe. Don't you want to be part of that group? Is there still any power in that message? Guess not. We're done then. Have a good day. See you next Sabbath. I don't know what we're going to talk about. Because there's really not much else, is there? At the heart of all of this. You can nod your heads. Absolutely there's power in this. It is a reframing, as I talked about, of the Adventist message, a subtle one, but an important one, because now the focus doesn't just become the second coming or all of those things that are going to happen in Revelation or beastly powers or future things that we're scared of or don't know. It's not going to be economics. It's not going to be other things. The focus is going to be on God with us. Past, in Christ, and future. And we are going to be a people that has the message of a God with us and a God to come. Adventists believe in the second coming. Adventists believe in the resurrection because we know that when one dies, one is dead. For the soul cannot be immortal. Why? For only God is immortal. Everything else shall pass. But when he put on mortality and transcended it, he gave us power to die with him and live in him. And he gave us a promise that in the resurrection we might also have life eternal. That we might have a share with God, not just as brothers of Christ or heirs, not just as those who are going to sit with him at the hand of God, not just as those who will be priests and kings and reign, but as a people who have solved the mortality problem. Make sense?
Now, it is in light of that that I want us to look at the two passages in Acts today. Acts chapter 2 is read as our call to worship, 2.42 and following. And Acts 4 is what we just read prior to my standing to speak. Let's refresh our memories in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I, no matter how many times I preach this, I cannot get around the sort of communistic sensibility that creeps in when I read it. This sort of notion of sharing everything, it sounds like a modern-day utopia or commune that's being talked about. It sounds like something that won't work, something bizarre, something some loser's going to take advantage of, and somebody else's... Anyway, you know what I mean? It sounds like a formula for Waco. So given my context, when I read this, I lose too much of the power of it. Am I being fair or harsh? Do you feel the same way maybe? Okay, so it's our context. Here we go. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Let's break that down really quick. There was the apostles' teaching. What were the apostles' teaching about? Salvation through faith by grace. They were teaching about Jesus. They knew who? Jesus firsthand. It was the message of Jesus that they were bringing to a world. So those who believed, the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, paid special attention to the teachings of those who knew him firsthand and walked with him for those three years on this earth. And to fellowship. That's what we're doing now. We're paying attention. We're giving ourselves to fellowship, especially as we do worship and as we eat together and as we do other things together, whatever they may be, playing sports, ministering to somebody, etc. They gave themselves to the communion feast. That's what the breaking of the bread means, to Passover. Not only recognizing that Egypt, Israel had been delivered from Egypt, but that we have been delivered from sin. That's the meaning of Passover. And Jesus says, I won't eat this meal again until we do so in my kingdom. So there's an eschatological angle to this. When the Acts records that they were breaking bread and engaged in that, they were still doing the Lord's Supper after his death and carrying that tradition on as God commanded, they were being pointed forward to an eschatological event in which Christ would be reunited with all of his followers and we would all break bread together in fellowship. Amen? And they were devoted to prayer. That is something I would love to see more devotion to in my life and in all of our lives collectively. What other tool do we have? And how easy it is to ignore God. Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Okay, feels like today we're pretty much short of the miraculous signs and wonders. Unless you like the Benny Hinn show. It didn't work. Let's try it again. Nobody fell over in the spirit. I think I need to work on that a little bit. Maybe a Benny Hinn has a, a camp or something I can attend on how to get this power. Okay, I shouldn't make fun of another pastor, but 
Nevertheless, it seems like we're kind of short on this someday until we really consider the miracle of what being in community is all about, right? And the sorts of things that we see in our midst. You know, we focused on the tragedy that Stephen's gone through, but do we focus on the miracle that he is? The man can stand. With some assistance, he can take steps. Nobody thought he would move anything from the neck down. Terrible tragedy, Stephen. But a wonderful miracle you are. And the miracle isn't just what he's become. The miracle is what God has done in his family. The devotion of a brother and a mother, it's a miracle. It's, it's love that, that it's hard to comprehend. It's a self-sacrificing day in, day out, do the dirty work kind of love. I'm sorry, you did, I didn't ask if I could make you sermon illustrations. It just came right to me. So please don't hold it against me. I, I really do love you all. We could be filled with awe ourselves if we thought about this. We could be filled with wonder. It is the quintessential religious experience because it is a moment in which we grasp the significant significance of what God has done and what God is doing in our midst. It's an understanding of His presence. All the believers were together and held everything in common and now all of a sudden my communist radar goes up. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to everyone as he had need. Oops, another flag goes up. I was in Hollywood too long. I'd drive to a corner where they had a sign out that said, Homeless, please help. I'd put out a sign that said, Heartless, please please help. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Every day somebody new was being saved. And the group was growing and growing in this context of community life and sharing. What if I told you you didn't have to sell everything you own? And bring it to the altar. What if I told you today that you don't have to sell off your parcels of land and give to someone else who doesn't have in this context, in this moment, in this place? What if I told you that the system that God has given us to meet our needs requires this, that you pay 10% tithe as a recognition of God's work in your life and that you give an additional offering, and the biblical recommendation takes you all the way up to an additional 10%. What if I told you that if everybody in this church, I mean everybody who had any kind of income or employment at all, paid tithe and paid 3 to 5% offering, we would have an associate pastor, and we would not see a negative number in our budget column, but we would see that we were above board every week in our budget giving. It is so difficult to enjoy a feast when you're going into debt to pay for the bread. Is that not true? And it is so difficult to bring everything you have to the altar only to look around and note that 
those around you are coming with nothing to the altar. You ever been in that place? Now, Lord knows, I've got some stewardship work of my own to take care of. I believe in that and I'll take care of that. That's my job. But I'll tell you this. Maybe it's this church, maybe it's another. I've pastored five churches, so you don't know where I'm drawing an illustration from. But I will tell you it's discouraging when you look at last week's giving and you realize that your contribution was over 50% of the total and there were 150 people there that day. And I've had that experience more than once. And some of you have had that experience more than once. What that says is something challenging. At those meetings that I went to for the union, which for many are destructive of their faith, but for me this year were actually really invigorating and helpful. There was a speaker named Herb Larson, and I think I shared with you his title uh, in reflecting on those a couple weeks ago. May I, a layman, be so brash as to offer you, a pastor, a relationship with Jesus. Do you remember that title? What a bold title to bring to a congregation of pastors. And he shared his passion for sharing Jesus. His passion for witnessing one-on-one to others. But his title earlier in the morning had been this one, and it applies not to pastors, but to you. What has become of me, question mark, upon reflective self-analysis? Have I become more of an establishment blob for the church or an explosive catalyst for Jesus Christ? That was the question he asked of himself before he asked of us if he could be so bold as to offer us a relationship with Jesus. And sometimes I wonder if we don't fall so easily into that pattern. We come used to the routines and rhythms. We become institutional in our thinking about church. We become blobs. Except, of course, for you, Mrs. Wenrick. Never you. I'm sorry. She was laughing. I had to, had to interact that way. If we turn over to chapter 4, there's something else there that's powerful. All of the believers were of one heart and mind. You understand what's happening here? They were all on the same page doing the, the same sort of thing to make church work. And it wasn't for the sake of church, by the way. It was for the sake of Christ. We always have to keep that straight or we start to lose perspective. Whose church is it? Christ. Who is the head? Who is the body? Christ is the head. Who's the body? Who did Christ die for? Does he love the church or hate it? Does he love those who love the church or love those who hate the church? He loves them all, but... Whose side is he on? Our side, the ones who love the church. Did he give himself for it? Did he send us gifts to build it up? Absolutely. 
No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything he had. Communist flag, red flag goes up there. But listen to this. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was on them all. Did you catch that phrase? I have read Acts so many times, and I tell you the truth, I don't think I've ever caught that phrase before. In four, you have a reiteration of two, essentially, except in this segment, the emphasis is on what? The telling of the resurrection of Christ. Because his resurrection is the central moment, isn't it? It's not just the penalty for sin that's been paid. It's not just the sin problem solved. It is the mortality problem solved. Christ, the immortal, who has taken on mortality, who dies, who lays three days in the grave, picks up life again and lives. And he says he's coming back for us. And if we have died before he's accomplished that, we too will be raised and those living will be, ra- will be raised up with him in the clouds. That's the resurrection hope. That is Advent hope. That is the message. Sin and death are done, conquered. There's victory in Christ. And not just over sin. Don't think it's just over... That was the Western concept, the Roman concept. It's not just guilt that it, the victory's won over. It's the victory over death that the victory is won over. Powerful stuff. And here in Acts, they are given to this. They are given to it. With great power, verse 33, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was on them all. You can say grace and peace go with you, but in the end, it is this sense of community taking care of community and the message going forward that gave a sense of grace and peace and presence. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands and houses sold them and brought the monies from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Flag goes up. And then this is the setup to the story of Anna, Ananias and Sapphira who sell a piece of land and it did well. did really well. They, they paid 250 for it but sold it for 500,000 bucks. And um, that was a nice profit. They weren't expecting that. And when they paid their 6% real estate commission, they still had quite a bit of money left. 470,000 by my calculations. And... Uh, Wow, tithe on that would have been what? Do you need to get out a calculator? Forty-seven thousand bucks a tithe. Yikes! Okay, well, let's suppose that they had already paid tithe on the two hundred and fifty that they invested uh, in the uh, land in the first place. So let's deduct that. So 500 minus 250 is what? 250 minus commission is 220. So what would tithe be on 220,000? 
22,000, that's a whole lot better than 47,000. You mean I was going to have to give $47,000 to the Lord? You've got to be kidding. We'll make it 22. And you know what? I bet we can do even better than sharing this with the apostles and the church. Why don't we just tell them that we only netted 300 on the property? We'll give 50. It's a little more than a tithe. All said and done, it's our property anyway. Let's do it. So Ananias go to Peter and say, here's the money. And Peter says, is it all? And they said, yep. And he says, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. Because God sees all. I only ask the question. I'm not trying to raise your flags. Nobody's asking you to go sell your house and become homeless. Nobody's asking you to live in a culture you don't live in. Nobody's asking you to take your savings account, which is your retirement, and and put it into a slush fund to give people who haven't worked or are out of work. Or Nobody's asking you to do that. We have a whole different system in this society, don't we? We have unemployment benefits. We have socialized medicine in the form of Medi-Cal and Medicare. We have all kinds of things in this society, and it's not perfect, and there's a lot we can do together for social justice in our own culture, isn't there? We need a lot of work to bring equity to the systems in our culture, and as Christians, we should speak to that. And there is a, a realm where charity matters. There is a time for sacrificial giving. There is a time to reach out and help somebody who can't help themselves. One of the things we're trying to do or have tried to do is put together a a shepherd's fund, a pastor's fund that I can discretionarily help members in dire need. That's one of the things on your envelope. So I don't want to make fun of that or ignore that in any way. But we don't have that kind of system. We don't have that kind of culture. We don't have that kind of place. We have systems culturally and systematically and governmentally and otherwise in place to help one another. So then the question comes, well, what do we do? And the scripture says, bring your tithes and your offerings to the storehouse that it might be full. I'm not discouraged. I look at the bulletin and I think, well, the problem, people probably think we're crazy to keep going with this kind of deficit. I mean, the truth is that we, you know, could be doing a lot better this year. The truth is that we have some reserves and those reserves help us float deficit funding for a while. The truth is that we have designated funds that help with different expenses. The truth is that we have... Um, ways of, of carrying over certain things from the year before so that surpluses become part of deficits and wipe them out. And I would look at you in the eye and say, no, we're, we're not in dire straits. But I don't like to see that we're 24, 26,000 behind in budget. I don't like to see that last year we were $72,000 down in tithe. And this year we're another 30% plus down in tithe. That tells me that something's, something's really not, not right because you know what? In those same two-year periods, our membership has grown. Let's see. More people, less money. It's a mystery to me. 
oh, those uncomfortable talks about money. I don't think I'll come to church again for a while. Oh, and I personally think that a lot of the emptiness in the pew here is because somebody went online and looked at my title in advance, read the text and said, I bet I know where he's going with this. But as comfortable, uncomfortable as these uh, little talks can be, we have a wonderful privilege, a wonderful opportunity, a treasure in this body of Christ. We have the teachings of the apostles. We have the breaking of the bread. We have the encouraging of one another in this place and elsewhere outside of it. We have this community. We have this mission. We have this freedom. We have this grace. We have the resurrection and the Advent message of God with us. And the problem of sin and the problem of mortality solved once for all. And we have the hope of life eternal with God. And this is no time in that context to forsake the bringing of our resources that the gospel may continue to go forward. This is no time to quit supporting when we have such joy and such fellowship and such hope and such a message as this. So my prayer is that God will make me faithful and that God will make you faithful. And together, we will not forsake the gathering of believers. And together, our collective needs will be met. And together, each will bring what he has, whether it's the widow's might or that $22,000 of tithe on that property sold. And together, we'll experience what Acts experienced, the church in Acts experienced. This wonderful coalescence of different things happening in such a way that the world finds favor with it. And the Lord is able to add to his church daily. O Lord, make us faithful to this end by these means that our church might be as you intended, a place where spirit life is, life is lived with joy, where the communion is carried forth in a way that acknowledges the grace of Jesus and the community of believers, where resources are shared that we might all have abundantly. Thank you for bringing us to this place and for calling us your own and for the gospel that includes a resurrection.
These things we praise you for in the name of Jesus. Amen.